It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I had a bit of a challenge yesterday putting together a piece for special report on media coverage of the New Hampshire primary. In other words, everything that had happened in the past week. And it was insane because there was so many things that I needed to try to get in from Ron DeSantis dropping out on video two hours after my show ended last Sunday to Nikki Haley being somewhat lackadaisical but then really toughening up her criticism of Donald Trump, um, questioning his mental fitness for office after he confused Haley with Nancy Pelosi, to MSNBC actually airing part of Trump's victory speech, and Haley's dueling speech where she came out and was all enthusiastic, and it was great. She showed passion, the kind of passion she should have showed two weeks ago, um, pretending like she kind of sort of won. Now, for a standard piece, you get a minute and 45 seconds, and that includes what we call the tag, where if you're out in the field, the reporter stands there with a microphone and says, analysts say this might happen. On the other hand, it might not. Only time will tell. Back to you in the studio. (laughs) Uh, My piece is a little more analytical. Anyway, it's available online if you want to check it out. Uh, We'll be building on that for my show Sunday. Now, I'm a little bit burned out on politics. We will get to everything on this podcast, but you know, basically have not had a chance to think about virtually anything else for the last month. So I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction here. Story number one. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Jon Stewart is coming back to The Daily Show. Wowza. Oh, as executive producer. Well, that's interesting that he'll help shape uh, the coverage of the once mighty show. And uh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He's going to be a part-time host. How great is that? Oh, well, only Mondays. He's only going to do Mondays. Look, I don't quite get it. Paramount, the parent company, very happy to have him. If you're going to do the show as a host, I don't know. Why don't you do twice a week? I mean, the news cycle moves far more quickly than when John was in the chair. I have a whole history with him. Um, I've been on The Daily Show. I've interviewed him for my show. Uh, We have tangled back and forth when disagreeing with things. And look, obviously, he's a left-leaning guy. Although at times, during the 16 years that he was the star of The Daily Show, he would take on... Democrats, not that often, and 24 Emmys under John Stewart during that period of time. What's important to understand about him is that, you know, whether you like him personally or not, is that he changed television news because the use of clips to show contradictions, the use of uh, a little bit more uh, aggressive Mockery, not in the way that John Stewart could have been. Brian Williams at NBC used some of that, and, and soon everybody was living in John Stewart's universe. Now, I don't want to overstate the show. I mean, it had 1.3 million viewers during his last year. 
But then it just kind of went adrift. I never quite took to Trevor Noah. Sometimes he was funny, but I don't think he had an instinctive feel for American politics. And in the last year, there's just been these rotating hosts, uh, you know, some of whom are uh, good comedians. Sarah Silverman, Leslie Jones, Michelle Wolf, who was way too harsh at the Correspondence Theater, Charlemagne the God, uh, Hassan Minaj, who kind of lost his chance when the New Yorker reported that he uh, was sometimes making stuff up. And of course, the people who work for Jon Stewart, many of them became big stars. Stephen Colbert, the biggest, now as the host of The Late Show on CBS. John Oliver, who got his own show on HBO. Samantha Bee, who did, I don't know, about seven or eight seasons with her show. And the climate has changed. Uh, late night comedy shows are not as popular as they u- used to be. That's why a number of them have been canceled. Stewart himself went on to do this, The Problem with John Stewart on Apple TV Plus. That was canceled uh, late last year. At the same time, whatever my disagreements with him, and, you know, he would go after me and then I would respond the next week. And it was kind of fun. I mean, I don't know how angry he really was. There's also sort of a level of television anger, shall we say. Um, but when he became an activist and single-handedly, in my view, by lobbying and embarrassing members of Congress, particularly senators, he broke a logjam and got this tremendous bill passed to help veterans who were suffering from various diseases because they were near toxic waste sites, for example. I mean, long overdue. Amazing that Congress hadn't already passed it. He did all the networks, including Fox, and he did a great job. He did a service to America. But now he's got to be funny again. And, of course, his brand of humor is to hammer home his points in a satiric fashion, shall we say, in a way that makes you laugh, but also makes you think. And basically, you know, I I wrote about Stuart one chapter in uh, my book, my uh, most recent book, and what he would do is they'd have their morning meeting and he'd come off and he'd been reading the papers and he'd be pissed off about something. And they would then egg him on, not every day, but sometimes, And the more that he got angry about whatever the supposed outrage was, Congress not passing some bill or some scandal involving whomever, the more they would write jokes. So it was sort of aggravation-fueled humor. And again, no dispute about the left-leaning bias, but... The show just hasn't been the same. But what's also interesting about this move by Jon Stewart is that he has never been through a Trump presidential cycle. He gave up being host of that program. Um, In 2015, just before the first Republican 
presidential debate, the one on Fox where Megyn Kelly asked that question about his treatment of women. So I'm sure in some ways he's been chomping at the bit since this is the third time it appears that the Republican Party is going to nominate Donald Trump. And I think also, you know, he's got this nice spread in New Jersey and I'm sure he doesn't need the money. He wants to get back in the game. You know, he tried some other things, directed a movie, but he didn't have the cultural and political impact that he had with that one late night humor show. And a lot of times now, what, what even the, you know, Tonight Show and Kimmel and so forth, what they do is they're trying to get clips online that go viral because a lot of people don't stay up to watch the show or for whatever reason. I just think John Stewart wants to be back in the game. He's only going to be doing, or he's only committed to do the part-time hosting thing for this year, but he will continue to executive produce um, through 2025. If I were in charge and he would only do one night a week, I would pick a second. I mean, he's doing the Rachel Maddow deal where she gets paid many, many millions of dollars by MSNBC, but except for special events like primary the other night in the caucus last week. Um, he only does Mondays. But then I would pick somebody else, like one person to do Tuesday through Thursday. The show doesn't air or didn't use to air on Friday. Because the rotating thing is, you know, viewers are creatures of habit. They don't want to wonder, who am I going to get tomorrow? I really like Sarah Silverman, but I don't like these other people. So nobody's asking for my advice, but there you go. Story number two. Let's strap in for some political talk. Here's the Washington Post saying that Nikki Haley is facing growing pressure from fellow Republicans to drop out of the presidential race. She was even facing pressure before the voting in New Hampshire. After placing second in the primary, top GOP leaders urging the party to reunite around a single candidate. Well, that's just not so hidden code for Donald Trump. She faces an uphill battle in the next states including her home state of South Carolina. There's been a lot of talk about that. Ronald McDaniel, head of the RNC, telling Fox that she didn't see the math and the path going forward for Haley. She's run a great campaign, but I think there's a message that's coming out from the voters. We need to unite around our eventual nominee, which is going to be Donald Trump. Uh, not so carefully disguised uh, plea for her to drop out. McDaniel also pointing out that, you know, Haley had a lot of resources in New Hampshire, that Governor Chris Sununu campaigned with her every day, and she still lost by double digits. Uh, the former governor was back in South Carolina yesterday, and since it's also her home, I, she's going to camp out there for a month, obviously, but how does she turn around that 30-point lead that Trump has? And you just have all these establishment people, many of whom, some of whom, I guess I would say, privately or not, did not want Trump to be the nominee. Here's uh, John Cornyn. To beat Biden, Republicans need to unite around a single candidate. And it's clear that President Trump is Republican voters' choice. I, I'm not arguing that he's not the choice. When you win Iowa and New Hampshire the way he did, and you're down to one opponent, J.D. Vance, who's 
Obviously a Trump guy. At this point, Haley can either drop out or help the Democrats. Ah, now she's going to be accused of being disloyal. You just see this with other members of Congress. Time to unite. Time to unite. Lindsey Graham, Trump's best friend in the Senate. The sooner we unite, the better. Sounds more high-minded than get out of the race right now if you hope to have any future in Republican politics. Sununu not giving up, with all respect to Ronald McDaniel, to say we're just going to call it after two states, 40 states to go, because it's getting too close, that's nonsense. So there. Maggie Haberman of the New York Times saying on CNN about Trump's speech, we basically came out and ripped Haley and, and mocked her a bit, and not that she didn't go first and slam him, But Maggie says that Trump gave the most scorched earth victory speech I have ever seen. I mean, it was astonishing. You would have thought he lost. Here's Rich Lowry writing in Politico. Haley is getting skewered by the MAGA right, led by Donald Trump himself, for having the temerity to persist in the act of running for president. How dare she? She's a tool of evil donors who are distorting the Republican primary process to weaken Trump. Now, there's a natural tendency for a party, says Lowry, once a candidate has established a decisive lead for the nomination to push other opponents to exit. But the vehemence of the attacks on Haley go beyond this normal pressure on a trailing candidate. Her GOP enemies are making a moral condemnation of her as a political candidate and a person for not suspending immediately. Since Haley's not inclined to do that, she came out early, said the race was far from over. Now, was that tethered to reality? Not really. Did she take advantage of the timing to get in front of the cameras while the margin in the race was single digits? Of course, that's what shrewd candidates always do. Yet MAGA voices, uh, he writes in Politico, are saying she needs to do the honorable thing and drop out. That doesn't really take a wordsmith to realize that not dropping out would then be the dishonorable thing. This is amusing, says Lowry. Coming from people who defend a man, Trump, who will fight and claw for every advantage, no matter what the rules or niceties, sometimes something his supporters affirmatively like about him. Yet they are having fainting spells. Ah. <sighs> that Haley may stay in the race for another month. Trump can chase Haley and Ron DeSantis around the front yard with an ax, and it's fine, but if Haley uses her salad fork during the wrong dinner course, they pronounce themselves shocked and horrified. (laughs) And he's got a great last line. The elephant really shouldn't be afraid of the mouse, rather than being obsessive about it. In the New York Times, Peter Baker, who always manages to find, a, or often I should say, manages to find a higher ground or broader angle, because everyone's now doing their second and third day pieces. Haley, where does this go? Trump versus Biden. What about South Carolina? The Times piece says we're not only looking at the almost certain matchup of Trump v. Biden, but the clash of two presidents of profoundly different countries, the president of blue America 
versus the president of Red America. That this goes beyond the binary liberal conservative split. It's partly about ideology, but also fundamentally about race and religion and culture and economics and democracy and retribution. And perhaps most of all about identity. Two vastly different or vastly disparate visions of America. Led by two presidents who, other than their age and the most recent entry on their resumes, could hardly be more dissimilar. Biden leads an America that, as he sees it, embraces diversity, democratic institutions, traditional norms, considers government a good force in society. Trump leads an America where the system has been corrupted by dark conspiracies and the undeserving are favored over hard-working, everyday people. Americans do not just disagree with each other, they live in different realities. January 6th is viewed either as an outrageous insurrection in service of an unconstitutional power grab by a proto-fascist, let me get a breath, or a legitimate protest that may have gotten out of hand but has been exploited by the other side and turned patriots into hostages. The two lands have radically different laws on access to abortion, and guns. And basically, that's why the election will focus on about six battleground states, because so much of the red and blue part of America are so locked in. And two of the very quick points here. Um, According to Pew, since Trump was elected, the share of Democrats who see Republicans as immoral, immoral, not just wrong, has grown from 35% to 63%. And for Republicans, 72% say the Dems are immoral, up from 47%. And this is just a great line. I mean, it's, I didn't know this, and it's just kind of head-scratching. Only about 4% of all marriages today are between a Republican and a Democrat. You know, some high-profile media couples that that description, but I, you know, I guess it's not so much the party registration, if I can just riff for a second, as the way you look at the world. If you're a woman who's strongly pro-choice, you're going to want to marry somebody who believes abortion should be made illegal. If you're a Hispanic with views on immigration or deportation, uh, and on and on. 4%. Hmm. Never. In modern history, says the Washington Post, have two less popular choices than Trump and Biden faced off on the November ballot. It's the dreaded do-over. Um, Trump and Biden teams both have reasons to want the general election campaign to begin. Trump is eager to stop spending money and attention on his Republican rivals, or rival, it should say. Biden has long viewed a one-to-one comparison with Trump as his strongest asset. So, Neither guy is popular. Uh, If you look at, well, more than half of Americans say in polls, they're dissatisfied by this very choice. In a Monmouth University poll last month, nearly half of respondents said they would definitely not vote for either man. 49% for Biden and 48% for Trump. So if that were to hold, then it changes, you know, as the campaign unfolds and people have to, you know, pick between the lesser of two evils. 
uh, or not vote at all, which, you know, especially for Biden, since Trump's uh, supporters are so passionate, that could be the difference between victory and defeat. But no wonder the whole campaign comes down to not just six states, but, you know, certain counties in those six states. A lot of the other states be lucky to see a presidential candidate this year. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Now, if you stayed up late Tuesday night, you may recall that Donald Trump in his speech said Nikki Haley came out in her fancy dress. It probably wasn't so fancy. So here's the New York Times, I don't know, fashion critic saying the dress is made by the designer Terry John, carried by department stores around the country, retails for $580, which is expensive, but not too expensive. It's knee length with an A-line skirt, fluted sleeves. The cut vaguely resembles a sort of 1950s hostess style. Conservative, but not too conservative. I defer to this writer on the dress. And just to uh, give you the flavor of where Trump is right now, puts up a true social post. Nikki Birdbrain Haley. So the nickname is back. It had faded for a while. Very bad for the Republican Party and DR country. Her false statements, derogatory comments, and humiliating public loss is demeaning to true American patriots. And then comes the, I was going to say the zinger, but I think the threat. Anybody that makes a contribution to Birdbrain from this moment forth will be permanently barred from the MAGA camp. We don't want them and will not accept them because we put America first. So I don't think the average person thinks of themselves as being, you know, you need a, a, an ID card to be part of MAGA. I think that's more aimed at prominent Republicans, fundraisers, you name it who might want to get a job in a Trump administration or otherwise need favors or at least access in a Trump administration. You give a dollar to Nikki and basically you're on the S list. I mean, how else could you read it? It's really something. There's a lot about uh, Tim Scott and how a lot of people think Trump kind of embarrassed him when he turned to him and said, you're from South Carolina and you're here tonight. You must hate her. And Scott, being a professional politician, said, oh, I just love you. And then we have more, you know, Trump can't win a general election. Outside the soft bubble of Republican primaries, says the New York Times, Trump's campaign is confronting enduring vulnerabilities that make his nomination a considerable risk for his party. President Biden would face his own challenges in a rematch of the 2020 contest. Biden, 81, widely disliked. And most Americans disapprove of his job performance. Four years older than Trump, he's facing deep skepticism about his age and struggling to hold on to the coalition of voters who underpin his first victory. And it goes on with various statistics. Haley won 58% of independents in New Hampshire. Trump needs independent voters. We'll see how it plays out. Oh, one more thing. Trump is scheduled to go back to the 
E. Jean Carroll defamation trial today in New York. And in a space of about 20 minutes, he published 37 truth social posts about E. Jean Carroll. Bringing up again uh, the sexual stuff she used to write about for Elle magazine, as I say that was her job. He had a screen recording which showed that Carol had liked a Facebook post saying she should be on The Apprentice. Well, it wasn't her saying, I want to be on The Apprentice. Uh, Trump continued with screenshots intended to embarrass her. Oh, the screenshots show Carol had called herself a fan of The Apprentice. So the underlying argument there is, well, if she hated me so much because she says I sexually assaulted her, which he denies, why is she uh, talking up The Apprentice? Story three. This is just wild, just absolutely wild. The Arizona Republican chairman, Jeff DeWitt, resigned yesterday over a leaked audio in which it looked like he was trying to bribe Carrie Lake. You recall Carrie Lake ran for governor, lost, said there was fraud, couldn't overturn that election, and now is running for Senate in Arizona. Now, DeWitt put out a statement saying that Lake's team had issued him an ultimatum to resign today or face the release of a new, more damaging recording. And the recording is out there. It was first reported by the Daily Mail. DeWitt says this was selectively edited and taken out of context. He says, I'm resigning, as Lake requested, in the hope that she will honor her commitment to cease the attacks, allowing me to return to the business sector. Okay. On this tape, this guy, DeWitt, says there are very powerful people who want to keep you out, but they're willing to put their money where their mouth is in a big way. So this conversation never happened. He says, so the ask I got today from back east was, is there any companies out there or something that could just put her on the payroll to keep her out? And to Carrie Lake's credit, she says, this is about defeating Trump, and I think that's a bad, bad thing for our country. And at another point, DeWitt tries again, says, is there a number at which? And Lake says, I can be bought. That what's it, that's what it's about. You can just take a pause for a couple of years. You can go right back to what you're doing. But Lake says, I won't do that for a million dollars or two million dollars or a billion dollars. It's not about money. It's about our country. Now, not only is this hugely embarrassing and here's the guy resigning and his out-of-context claims don't sound very convincing to me, but but this seems like, I say in an alleged and non-legal sense, like a classic definition of attempted bribery. Obviously, cases are brought more often when money has changed hands. I mean, good for Carrie Lake, whether you like her politics or not, for just slamming her foot down and saying, that's not going to happen. I'm all about Donald Trump, and I'm not, no amount of money could sway me. But I wonder whether there'll be any kind of investigation into this matter. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Okay, number four. I know I'm a little bit late to this, but I still think it's outrageous, and it just got crowded out by all the political stuff. 
It's about Barbie. And the New York Times and every else on the planet is, is writing about this, but from this particular piece, in her old world, Barbie can accomplish just about anything. But in the real world, Barbie dealt a real setback. This is about the Oscar nominations. So Greta Gerwig, who directed, you know, it was the biggest blockbuster movie of the year, no nomination, despite the fact that it was the highest grossing movie ever directed by a woman. Also, no nomination for Margot Robbie, who played Barbie. But here was, as you probably heard, an Oscar nomination for Ken, played by Ryan Gosling. In fact, this is such an embarrassment and so indefensible that Gosling says no recognition would be possible for anyone on the film without the, their talent, grit, and genius. He said, to say I'm disappointed that they are not nominated in their respective categories would be an understatement. Now, then there's some sort of B-matter. You know, comedies often struggle to win favor with the Oscars. Female-led comedy has even more hurdles to overcome. Now, Barbie is in the best picture category. Oh, so Barbie is nominated for the best picture category. And all members of the Academy can vote on that. But the snub of Greta Gerwig was delivered only by the director's branch of the Academy, 570, 587 voters, a quarter of which are women. Now, what does that suggest to you? Hillary Clinton getting into this, saying Greta and Margot, while it can sting to win the box office but not take home the gold, your millions of fans love you. Uh, could she be making an allusion to a certain election that might have taken place around 2016? I think so. And here's Times columnist Pamela Paul saying something that can get you run out of town. She doesn't like the Barbie movie. Can you criticize it without being written off as mean, old, hateful, or humorless? After Barbie lifted box office figures. It also felt like a willful dismissal of the need to make Hollywood solvent after a season of hell. And it felt like a political statement. Disliking Barbie meant either dismissing the power of the patriarchy or dismissing modern feminism. You were either anti-feminist or too feminist or just not the right kind. Few dared reign on Barbie's hot pink parade. Those who openly hated it did so mostly for reasons having to do with what it stood for. And then she goes into the Oscar snubs. All right, story number five is about Sports Illustrated, which, as you know, if you're a sports fan, and as I've talked about in the podcast, the entire staff was laid off by the parent company. And I don't know, is it dead? How do you put out a magazine with no staff? Is it just going to be a website? Is it going to be anything? So this is a nice sort of reminiscence of SI, saying about the covers over the decades. Maybe it was the wordless image of the United States Olympic hockey team celebrating the miracle on ice. Maybe it was the perfect frame of Dwight Clark making the catch to send the San Francisco 49ers to the 1982 Super Bowl. Or it could have been the declaration that 17-year-old LeBron James was the chosen one before he ever played in the NBA. Fans of a certain age, 
The memory of running to the mailbox to see what was on the cover of the latest Sports Illustrated is indelible. The magazine's photographers, writers, and editors held the power to anoint stars and delivered the definitive account of the biggest moment in sports. Uh, To the extent any magazine had that power, it is severely diminished now. But the road has been particularly rough for Sports Illustrated. And then it talks about the layoffs. Now, its power to define sports discourse faded long before this year. Robert Beck was one of the last SI photographers when the magazine laid off all its photojournalists in 2015. Well, that would be a hint of the problems that have now seemingly brought its reign to an end. He's best known for a head-on photograph of Brandy Chastain in a sports bra celebrating the U.S. soccer team's victory back in the Women's World Cup final 1999. Now, there were dozens of photographers there, and they all tried to take that picture, but he was the only one who had it head-on rather than from an angle. That made it famous. Famed athletes like Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods have each appeared on the magazine's cover dozens of times. One photog remembers uh, being at the 2001 Masters on the 16th hole. Um, Tiger missed a birdie putt. And this guy didn't have enough time to get to the 18th green. So using a silent camera with no motor so he wouldn't distract Tiger Woods, he took a wide shot from a tower of his tee shot at the final hole, almost surrounded by fans. The one-word headline, masterpiece. That picture made my career, says this man, Fred Vuick. Hmm. And then, of course, there's the swimsuit issue, which uh, featured such supermodels as Kathleen Ireland, Tyra Banks, and Brooklyn Decker. I'm sure there's a bunch of guys out there who don't care about sports, but like one issue a year, shall we say. And it's just a shame. But, you know, you look back now and it's a different era. A different era when print magazines had a lot more clout and a lot more readers. And there wasn't this thing called X that we could all go online and check every 15 seconds or more. Well, with that, I'll keep an eye on all these various stories for you. That's the job. Do a lot of research here. I don't just sit down and blather. I do research and then blather. Hope to see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.